Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm Caroline, and today we're talking about body dysmorphic disorder. Which I feel like if we had done this podcast even maybe five years ago. The term would probably be alien to most people, but it seems like this is becoming more uh, a more acknowledged uh, disorder, mental mm-hmm. disorder. Uh, and what specifically are we talking about when we talk about body dysmorphic disorder? Basically, it's being it's taking that body insecurity that pretty much everybody has, but magnifying it. It's actually a chronic mental illness in which you can't stop thinking about your appearance, whether that flaw is real or imagined. Yeah, and this is classified as a somatoform disorder, which means that uh, these symptoms suggest a medical condition, but no specific medical condition can be found by a physician. And it's also known as dysmorphophobia or fear of having a deformity. And you might think like, oh, body insecurity. Okay, well, I mean, this must just be a 21st century problem. We're looking at too many magazines. But actually, that term, the dysmorphophobia, dates back to 1886. And it wasn't until 1987 that the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders changed the official term to body dysmorphic disorder. And there have been cases uh, charted for the past century and also around the world. Yeah, what's interesting about this condition is that it resembles so many other conditions in in parts of it. Uh, it resembles OCD because you have this obsessive worry about a body part or, a, you know, maybe your weight, uh, constant grooming, maybe you're picking at pimples on your face, you're constantly fixing your hair. Also resembles eating disorders if you're thinking that you're significantly overweight when you're not. It also has aspects of social anxiety disorders because you end up isolating yourself. You're thinking, oh, I'm so ugly because of X, Y, Z, so you don't even want to go out in public. Yeah, and to, to understand that line between um, a general insecurity and this actual disorder, uh, going back to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they define it as being extremely preoccupied with an imagined defect or minor flaw in your appearance and also being so... So preoccupied with appearance that it causes you significant distress or problems in your social, work, school, or other areas of functioning. I mean, there are literally people who will not leave their homes because they believe that they are so hideous to a delusional extent, which um, Harvard research has found that in about half the cases of BDD, the concern reaches these delusional proportions. Because there's that point in your head where, you know, say you, you know, you don't like your, you have some acne and you feel like it's, it's like magnified in your brain, but you Mm -hmm. know that it's just acne. But with these delusional cases of BDD, it's just hideous and you are grotesque. You're a monster. Yeah. And some of the things we read, they, they talked about it in reference to, uh, like anorexia, for instance, where it's one thing if you think like, well, I could stand to lose a few pounds or whatever, but you know, I know I'm generally okay. You know, there's that view that you are honestly like hideous and deformed. Right. You end up being very underweight mm-hmm. and you look in the mirror and you still see 
a large frame. Right. Well, Catherine Phillips over at Harvard, who has done a lot of research on BDD, says that many of these people try to uh, get cosmetic surgery to fix these perceived flaws, but end up never being satisfied. And I mean, like, how many celebrities have we seen who, you know, may or may not have this condition, but who just keep going on and on with the plastic surgery? Yeah. Um, and speaking of people, uh, the there are estimates that this affects between three and six million Americans. That's coming from BDD expert Dr. Sari Shepard. And then um, Catherine Phillips uh, similarly says that it probably affects between one and two percent of the American population. But that number might actually be higher mm-hmm. because a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of times, this, this this disorder is shrouded in a lot of secrecy. Yeah, the rate, the estimated rate in the general population is about two percent, but they think that that is up to about fifteen percent of patients in dermatology and cosmetic surgery clinics because they're actually seeking to fix whatever problem it is. Um, a random survey, this was from April 2008 in CNS Spectrums, a random survey found that the estimated prevalence of BDD was about 2.4%, so right along that same line, and it actually exceeds the prevalence of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder type 1. It's about equal to that of generalized anxiety disorder. And a lot of times, like you mentioned, um, it will happen alongside something like an eating disorder. For instance, among anorexia patients, uh, around 39% will also uh, be found to have BDD. It's closely associated with OCD behaviors as well. The OCD Center of Los Angeles um, conducted a study and found that 24% of BDD sufferers also had OCD. Um, and they also a lot of times will exhibit an OCD cycle that reinforces this negative behavior in an attempt to combat it. For instance, uh, people with BDD might compulsively check themselves in the mirrors to to feel okay, try to diminish their anxiety about their appearance. But that compulsive behavior of staring at yourself in the mirror for extended amounts of time actually reinforces the disorder. Yeah. Um, but what about some more specific symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder? Because I think a lot of times, at least in my mind, when I first heard about it, I assumed that it was just a weight thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, according to the U.S. Psychiatric and Mental Health Congress, 60% of BDD sufferers agonize over their noses. 66% um, will stress out over acne and scarring. 33% marks on skin. 25% will agonize over the color of their skin. And a lot of times, most commonly, it's the skin, hair, nose, and specific body parts that will will cause the distress. Yeah, when I was in middle school, I have a very pointy nose, for those of you out there in it's podcast a, land. It is a cute nose. Oh, thanks. But when I was in middle school, I just hated it, hated it, hated it. It was so self-conscious. And if I if I liked a boy, I wouldn't sit so that... My profile was like directly facing him. I would sort of try to sit kind of diagonally or or head on because I was like, oh, God, don't look at me from the side. That's the worst. That's the nose angle. <laughs> no. Well, you do have a very cute nose. Thank you. Um, so what about the um, the the demographics? Because this was another surprise 
with this research, um, I think, again, there might be an assumption of, oh, body insecurity, especially if we're talking about the media influence. This must be something that mostly happens to women, right? It's actually pretty even. Yep. Uh, this affects men and women very similarly. Uh, different. They're, they're worried about different things, but the same amount pretty much are, are pretty worried. This is uh, from the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease from September 1997. Uh, women are more likely to be pre- uh, preoccupied with their hips and weight, pick their skin and camouflage flaws with makeup, and have comorbid co-morbid bulimia, whereas men are more preoccupied with body build, genitals, and hair thinning. They tend to use hats for camouflage. They actually tend to be unmarried also and have alcohol abuse or dependence. Yeah, speaking of the, the gender difference, with hair specifically, with men, they're scared they have too little. With women, they're scared that they have too much. Yeah. And um, sort of in support of this gender equality. This is not the kind of equality that we really advocate for. But in terms of the the parity with BDD, um, there was a 2001 study in, in the British Medical Journal that cited research findings that the proportion of men dissatisfied with their overall appearance has tripled in the past 25 years. And this is something that the media started paying more attention to. Um, there have been, uh, there's been more research into this, more insight in seeing how the the cultural beauty myth that has for a long time kept women very insecure about their appearance and kind of the you know the dictates of telling us what we should wear and how we should look it is affecting men as so much more as well these days exactly well uh, another study this is again Catherine Phillips who she has done so much research this is from 2006 supports that there are a lot of similarities between men and women with this condition um, women however are uh, we we're more excessive with the things that we are insecure about because if you go down the list of things that uh, Catherine Phillips points out you know like there are a couple of points with men, but then women, it's like, yeah, we're obsessed uh, about everything from our skin, literally down to our toes. We also, she found, tend to have earlier onset of the subclinical BDD symptoms, so things that we touched on earlier like anxiety or depression, more so than men. Yeah, and um, there's a subset of body dysmorphic disorder that tends to affect men uh, more commonly than women, and it's something called muscle dysmorphia. And this is coming from Jennifer Waldron from the University of North Iowa. She said it typically occurs in boys and men who have a well-defined muscular build, and it's a combination of biological, psychological, and social factors. And uh, in short, muscle dysmorphia is an obsession over a muscular build to where when you look in the mirror, even if you've been pumping iron, you might even be using steroids. There's a heightened risk of steroid use with muscle dysmorphia. You still see a puny frame. Yeah, this is ANRED, uh, which is anorexia nervosa and related eating disorder, says that these people really do see themselves as small. And there could be something wrong with the brain's ability to map actual physical boundaries. And so they end up spending a lot of time just thinking, I'm undersized. If I skip a day of exercise, you know, I'm going to not be healthy or big or built anymore. So they tend to start neglecting family and friends over exercise. Even if they're sick, they don't take a day off. They just want to keep getting bigger. Yeah. And it's, it's like the, um, sort of the, the masculine version of the, the cultural body standards that have been and 
uh, you know, dictated toward women. You know, women are supposed to be, you know, have the slight, delicate, thin frames, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, men are taught to be these, like, hairless, like, triangular-backed muscle machines. Right. Well, this, uh, the, in the American Journal of Men's Health from December 2007, they point out that gay men are actually more likely to experience something, a lot of body pressures along the same lines that women are. And they are more likely to want to be thin and pursue that thinness uh, at a greater risk. So they are more likely to have eating disorders as opposed to the muscle dysmorphia that more it's more affecting straight men. Now, you did mention, though, Caroline, with the, the Anne Red finding, they're saying that, you know, there could be something in terms of the muscle dysmorphia, there could be something wrong with uh, patients' brains' abilities to map boundaries. And as um, researchers are trying to figure out what is going on with body dysmorphic disorder, they are looking to see whether there are brain structural differences between the general population and uh, these BDD patients. And they think that it might have something to do with the left side of our brain that's more analytical and the right side of our brain that is more um, general. It's the, the organizational versus the executive functioning in the brain. And some research has suggested that when someone with biodysmorphic disorder looks in the mirror, that left analytical side of the brain kicks into high gear and focuses in on details and doesn't see the entire picture, whereas the in the the healthy population there's more of a brain balance between the organizational and the executive seeing the details but also seeing seeing the full picture as well yeah that's interesting i i had never heard anything like that and it wasn't just with their own pictures it was with pictures of other people so they just zeroed in on the the negative the the big pores the acne scars whereas somebody else might just look at you and be like wow that person's really pretty And there are also the psychological risk factors that we should mention as well. Um, Childhood trauma and abuse is something that's been linked strongly to it. Self-esteem issues is something that comes up a lot with bullying. I think you mentioned bullying Mm -hmm. um, earlier. Uh, And they've also found that in terms of treatment, that SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, the form of antidepressants have been helpful. So they wonder if there's something to in the brain chemistry and how our neurons communicate to each other that might um, interfere with how they see and interpret their bodies in the mirror. And we've touched on uh, conditions that can kind of be related to this uh, depression, anxiety. There are definitely uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviors that get tied in with BDD because, you know, these people are so concerned about something that other people might think is relatively minor, but they end up blowing it up in their minds. And so it can also get tied in with eating disorders, social isolation, etc. And a December 2004 study in the American Journal of Psychiatry did find a link to depression in women in particular. They had a sample of women ages 36 to 44 and found that the presence of BDD was significantly associated with the presence of major depression and anxiety disorders. Yeah, and Catherine Phillips and other BDD experts will urge people who are exhibiting the symptoms of BDD to see a doctor. If that shame and that embarrassment, that, that psychological anxiety is weighing down on you, they say, go see a doctor. You know, it might be easy. One of the biggest myths about BDD is that it's 
just, uh, you know, overblown vanity. And it's just a symptom of our times and, you know, over media saturation. But they are saying, no, actually, like this is a very real disorder that does not get better a lot of times on its own. Um, and if untreated, it could get worse over time. And like you said, lead to suicidal thoughts and behavior. Right. And it really affects everything. It's not just like, oh, my gosh, I hate my hair. Um, a uh, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease study from 2000 found that outpatients actually had a worse quality of life overall. They found that physical health-related quality of life scores were generally worse than the uh, U.S. population norms, although they were better uh, than those for outpatients with actual medical illness or depression. But they found that in general, across all mental health domains... BDD subject scores were worse than the norm, and they had more symptoms and greater delusionality. But on the upside, there are treatments for it. I mean, there isn't a, a pill that you can pop and it's going to magically go away. A lot of times we mentioned uh, the SSRI antidepressants that have been helpful, especially if you have the, the comorbid anxiety, depression, OCD issues going on as well. Um, and a lot of cognitive therapy. It's a lot about changing how you process um you know, your, your, your self-esteem and how your, your confidence, how you feel about yourself. And obviously it's, it's a, it's a combination of, yes, these mental exercises and also it seems like very real brain chemistry issues that should be, um, that could use adjustment as well. Mm-hmm. And in addition, uh, there are certain wellness behaviors that Dr. Sari Shepard, who is one of the the experts that we've referenced, um, said have been helpful, such as teaching patients just healthy eating practices, exercising yoga Mm -hmm. in particular has been found to be helpful, and positive socialization. The thing that um, you've mentioned about, like, actually getting patients out there and sort of reintroducing them into social situations and uh, reinforcing that idea that, hey, you are not you are not a hideous monster. You are, you know, yeah. you are a person worthy of love. And also that this is something worth treating. Yeah. Like there's no reason that you should have to live with this pain and pressure that you're putting on yourself, you know, that you just think that that you're terrible to look at or that your thighs are humongous or your nose is out of whack. Like you you should go seek help for this so that you can, you know, get back to having a normal, happy life. And there are a couple of resources I want to throw out there. Um, the Broken Mirror by Dr. Catherine Phillips is a book that's often referenced. It's one of, it was one of the first uh, big books on BDD. And then online you can go to bddcentral.com as well to find more resources out there. So... I hope that this has been uh, helpful and enlightening. Biodysmorphic disorder. It's not something to just brush aside. It's a very real mental disorder. But there is help out there. So that's all we've got. If you have any um, stories or questions about BDD, feel free to send us an email. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send it. And you can always find us on Facebook as well. And we have a couple of emails to share in the meantime. 
Well, the first one I have here is from Jen, and this is in response to our Summer Shorts episode on swimsuits. And she is a student at North Carolina State University College of Textiles pursuing a BS in textile technology with a concentration in technical textiles. And she was really excited to hear this podcast because we talked about Olympic swimsuits, and it is right up her alley. She writes, It doesn't surprise me one bit the cost of the Olympic suits. In the world of technical textiles, oftentimes every angle between individual fibers is precisely engineered to serve a specific purpose in addition to the shape and chemical makeup of the fiber, the way the yarn is twisted, the type of weaving or knitting used, and the construction of the final product. This year's suits focus primarily on shaping the body through the use of compression to literally force the body into the most hydrodynamic shape possible. An added bonus to this is that compression increases muscle performance, which is a feature you see in a lot of high-performance sports apparel. The suit is also extremely hydrophobic as to not pick up extra weight, which would slow down the swimmer. And this feature is actually what got last uh, Olympic suits banned. A full-body suit of completely hydrophobic fabric lifts the swimmer up too high in the water, where the air provides less drag. The suits also don't feature traditional sewn seams, which are bumpy and can create drags. Instead, the fabric is ultrasonically seamed together, which involves using ultrasonic pulses to melt the fibers together. I would assume there is a minimal amount of seaming at all. 3D knitting technology, what? 3D knitting technology allows us to knit a complete garment straight out of the loom. Considering all the research that went into these, $500 for a swimsuit seems like a steal. That is fascinating. Well, yeah, sure, when you put it that way. Because <laughs> $500 is a bargain. Ultrasonic pulses to melt the fibers together. Jen, thank you so much for that insight. Wow. Into Olympic swimwear. Imagine what they could do for panty lines. <sighs> They'd be gone. I know. Uh, here's an email from Whitney that is actually kind of scary and funny all at the same time. Oh, it's about baby fever, right? uh, This is about baby fever. She says, Now, I'm no scientist and have definitely not conducted any studies pertaining to the subject, but based on personal experience, I will swear to anyone that the baby fever is extremely contagious. I was working in a small department consisting of myself, three other women, and two men, all working together for eight hours a day, five days a week. I was the first one of our group to get pregnant, but it was not planned. The best accident of my life, of course, but an accident nonetheless. As we shared so much of our lives together, my coworkers actively participated in my pregnancy and all the crazy emotions it entailed. Nine months later, my beautiful girl, Oriana Muse, came into the world. About a month after that, one female coworker ecstatically announced the upcoming arrival of one of her own little bundles of joy who happened to be born exactly nine months after my daughter was born. A few months after her announcement, another female co-worker had the same joyful news to announce to the group. Further, the fourth and final female co-worker declared her pregnancy soon after that. Of course, our supervisor was put in quite the predicament when two-thirds of our department required six-plus weeks of maternity leave. The craziest part of the story is that all four of us had little baby girls. So she says that the moral of my story is to stay away from pregnant ladies. If you don't want a baby anytime soon, the fever is contagious and spreads rapidly. Ooh, the fever. The baby fever. 
So, thanks to everyone who's written in momstuffatdiscovery.com. Again, is where you can send your letters. Or you can also find us on Facebook. Like us while you're at it. Follow us on Twitter, why not? At momstuffpodcast. And you can check out our new Tumblr blog. It's fantastic and fun. And we just delight. You can find it at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you would like to learn more about body dysmorphic disorder, you can read how body dysmorphic disorder works at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?